Hi, this is Jason, lead pastor at Casper Alliance Church. This is week nine of Failures in Faith. Thanks for stopping by our teaching podcast. This week we're going to begin the story of Joseph. We have a few more weeks left of this work, uh, working through Genesis. Hope you've enjoyed it. If you'd like to know more about Casper Alliance Church, you can check us out at casperchurch.com or facebook.com forward slash Casper Alliance Church. In this particular episode, you'll hear a part of a musical from J- Joseph the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Clearly we didn't produce it, but I hope you enjoy it. We're going we're gonna to pick up with Joseph. Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Are you guys fans of musicals? Well, I really, I just, I could read the story to you, but I, I prefer for you to, to enjoy a visual extravaganza of where the story is right now. Join me in watching the screen. She was quite my favorite wife I never really loved another all my life Joseph was my joy because he reminded me of her Through young Joseph, Jacob lived his youth again Loved him, praised him, gave him all he could But then it made the rest feel second best And even if they were Being told we're also
hitting theology that you're going to get here at Casper Alliance Church. Now, it's a musical. It's Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. It's, it's actually fairly accurate in the way the story gets told. But it's such a spectacle in, as we're watching, right? And they have all these funny colors. And I mean, and Joseph in the, in the musical is like, I'm a walking piece of art. But it, it is, it's a spectacle. But at the same time, their narrator, which is the female character in here, but the narrator of Genesis, inserts this story, inserts this, tr this thing to remind the reader of, of how much Jacob loved Joseph. In a way to where it was, it's such a bizarre thing, like we're going through the life, we went through Abraham, we've gone a little bit through Isaac, we have these different things, and then Jacob comes along and we get to see the back and forth with Jacob and Esau, and all of the different nuances that happen there, and the relationship, and the relationship gets put back to order, and then you arrive in Joseph, and you have the 12 kids, and, and you have Joseph here, and, then, and it's just this spectacle that, that Joseph was so much more loved and favored that the writer... The narrator of Genesis says, you need to know about this. He was so much more loved and so much 
uh, thought of, that he got this special coat, this coat of many colors. And it's a story that most kids that grow up in church know, Joseph and the coat of many colors. But what it does is it it sets the stage for a chaotic event, which we're going to kind of talk about here for a second, uh, in Joseph's life that, that, again, is a catalyst to put things in motion of the story of God. But let's, let's actually, I know we watched the story, kind of the beginning parts of it. His father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Now we're going to, they, they went through it, the sons of Jacob in the, in the story. And, and these are the people in the family. Now verse 5, now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold. Now remember, we talked about behold a couple different times during this eight weeks. This is week nine. We talked about behold. Behold is all about getting the reader's attention, pointing it in a different direction. It's saying it's time to take note of what I'm going to say next. So even the biblical author here is using the voice of Joseph and saying, Joseph says, behold. So Focus on what I'm saying next. Behold, we, are, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheep arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheep. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then Joseph dreamed another dream. And he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, again, we're going to focus another direction. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, the eleven stars were bowing down to me. Now, how many sons were there? Twelve sons. And he's saying that there will be eleven that bow down. So he's like, he's elevating himself a little bit here. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I... Your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you. And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept saying, kept the same in mind. So even his, even his dad was like, who loved him dearly, who was his favorite, was like, I don't know if you should be saying this out loud. I don't know if this is a thing that you should be saying. Are we even going to bow down? Like me, Jacob, going to bow down before you? Now, there's a couple ways, and, and I, I think it's interesting. The Bible... Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly the intention or the purposes or even, even why, why the reader is supposed to know these things. And so you can, you can interpret them from two different standpoints, I think. You can interpret it as it literally is, the dream and how, in which, how it's Joseph interpreted it for them that at some point. And if you know the Bible story, we know what's going to end up happening down the, down the road. You can interpret it as like he's going to actually reign over them and they're going to they're gonna bow before him. But on the other side, if you're one of the brothers or even like if you're a, a, a critical reader, like I tend to be sometimes, you look at it and go, come on, what, what, what's up with this arrogance? Why is he even, what is, why? Why would you even present this? Like, let's go into dreamland uh, just as a church family. Is there a dream that you've had? I'm not asking you to share right now, but that was crazy that you probably shouldn't have shared with somebody? Like, have you had dreams where, like, cats had, you know, had horns and, and dogs could fly? Like, we know our dreams. Like, dreams are wonky. There's dreams that, like, we, we, we have dreams that we should never repeat to someone. In fact, most of us probably don't share our dreams. 
because of how weird they are. Joseph has a different perspective on dreams. Now we see this unfold as he continues to move along in the story. But, you know, maybe it's time for Joseph to keep his mouth shut. To not share his dreams. Not to invite. Not to invite the criticism. That's another question I, I had this week. Do we invite criticism by the words that we use? Not just sharing the things that are going on in life, but do, do we say things that actually invite others to not like us? To invite others to despise us? To invite others to be jealous of us? I am a, a classical oversharer. <laughs> if there is a picture of a person who overshares in the dictionary, it is my face. I overshare. As part of oversharing, one of the things that I trip on, or it's a speed bump for me, is I can come across arrogant, or angry, or even critical. I'm just sharing, I'm just talking. It's not in my heart, it's not in my nature, it's not, like, it's, I mean, maybe it's in my nature, but it's not in my, like, it's not in my intent. But because I'm an oversharer, and I have too many words, there are times in conversations where I'll just dominate the conversation. So it'll come across even that maybe I don't, I'm not interested in. Or I don't want to hear from you. So there are times where our words are an invitation for others to not uh, like us. And not that our, our goal is to be liked, but that we are inviting kind of chaos into our world. And I think that, that if you were to read it and interpret, it, interpret Joseph's endeavor this way, he'd be like, you know what, I'm the favorite. I know that I'm the favorite. I'm going to tell you what I think because I had these dreams that suggested that I'm going to be bigger and better and badder than you guys all are. And so let's just, let's just create the scenario right now. I'm 17, I'm the baby, but you're all going to bow down to me. Now we all know this. I, 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 I've used the birds in a couple of different stories the last few weeks. I, I have a sense that little Liam can get the entire household to bow down to him at some way. Because he's just kind of cute. And um, Chris, bring him up here for a second. I didn't, we didn't plan on this, but I want to just point something out to you. I'm not even going to talk to him. He's not even going to look at me. You just hold him. But I want everybody to look at his boots. Just look at his boots. If that's not an effort to make everyone bow down <laughs> to him, then what? I mean, that's exact, this is Joseph's dream right here. Now, look at what he's wearing. He's wearing a sweater that has a tie printed on it, which suggests I'm the cutest man in the room. I dare you to counter that. Thank you, Chris. But this, in their household, he, he can get anyone wrapped around his fingers. Am I wrong? Le Am I wrong, Leah and Nori? Will you pretty much do anything for that little kid? I mean, if he cries just enough. But we... That happens. The baby always gets away with everything. Is anybody else the baby in the family in here that just gets away with everything? That's how it is. Yes, only child syndrome. I'm married to one of those. They get whatever they want, whenever they want. <laughs> but that, that's the attitude. But then at the same time, they, like when Chris and Hannah, I, I'm going to say Hannah because Chris was here for men's record, woke up this morning and she's like, I'm going to dress Liam in a way to everybody's going to go, oh, Oh my goodness, 
Everyone with little kids does it. We did it too. I'm sure we had the exact same sweater at one point in our lives. And we put our kids in boots too, and everyone loved them. They still do, but it's, we do it. But that's kind of the interesting thing that with little kids, we can, we can prop them up. But if you do it too long, they'll eventually realize that they're capable of manipulating conversation. They're capable of manipulating feelings. They're capable of manipulating and getting things that they want out of it. Not necessarily saying Joseph did that, but as a 17-year-old boy, you can see how if he's being fawned on by his father, who's pretty powerful, pretty wealthy, pretty important in the land, and is kind of famous because of Abraham, and kind of famous because of all of what's been passed down to the land, you can see how the brothers would go, listen, you need to zip it. Now, let's go to verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture, their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, and remember, who's Israel? Jacob, right? His name was changed. Are, you, are not your brothers pastoring the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. So he said to them, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent them from the valley of Hebron, and, came, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where, where they are pasturing their flocks. The man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. All right, so some of it is they're like, they're giving credibility to Joseph's dreams right here. They're saying, all right, this guy, he's got some dreams. It kind of sounds like it could happen. Now, in ancient times, dreams mattered. In ancient times, a lot of people thought that God spoke, the gods, lowercase with an S, spoke through dreams. We also know that God speaks to people through dreams and has utilized dreams. And so this isn't an abnormal concept. Joseph's not arriving to the, to the family as the baby brother with a new idea like, oh, I'm the first person that spoke through dreams, that has been spoken to through, through dreams. But even more so, dreams were given a lot of credibility and authority because it was a common thing to have happened in the ancient world. So in some ways, the brothers are going what if these dreams come true? Let's hedge against that. I don't want to bow before this monkey. I'm not going to lift this little boy up. I'm not going to, to bow before him. So instead of having to bow before him, let's just kill him. So they're hedging against it. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of the hand, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him in a pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. He might rescue him from their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. You know, after a good murder, let's go have dinner. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, and their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, 
on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brothers and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother in our own flesh, and his brothers listen to him. Uh, let's listen to reason. Now, remember, Judah. Judah is the line in which what happens? Who comes from Judah? Jesus. Our Messiah, the Messiah, the one who rescued us, the one who died for us, the, the owner of that tribe, that line, this is the one that instigated, hey, let's just sell him into slavery. Let's be... I'm going to be the one to come up with the idea. Let's not just kill him. Let's sell him. So not only can we get rid of him, but we can profit a little bit too. It's just some cool stuff here. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites with 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe into blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments, and put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus my father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Again, uh, as we journey through Genesis here and we're hearing of the stories of, of failures in faith, we see, because we know or we've been taught the story, and we're going to continue to walk through it in the next few weeks, that, that the sequence of events had strategically placed one of God's chosen in the business central hub of the world, Egypt. But still, in all of this, in all of the experience, in all of the, the, the goofiness and the, and the strain, and, and even just like Joseph's relationship with his father and, and, and with his brothers and, and just trying to kind of learn how to be a teenager, all of this horribleness happens to him. Now, I've been in fights with my brother and sister. I've had fights. Siblings have fights. They get in fights. My, my boys, they fight every now and again. It happens. I, I'm sure in my, if I, at some point in our life, one of, either my brother or I have said, I'm going to kill you. But there is no plan, I don't think, where we strategically mapped out how to do it and figure out how to carry it out so that we could rid each other. I mean, it's just like you're in a rage, you're in an anger. But this whole situation is like this sustained frustration and anger and bitterness. And you see how just a little bit of jealousy... A little bit of jealousy plants a seed, plants a seed, and it grows. Now, that's a, there's a great Veggie Tales, it, but it talks about rumors and gossip. It's called the rumor weed. It's fantastic. But it, it has a concept of this little thing that starts, that bursts itself, 
into something that becomes horrible and disgusting and evil. We've had some funny times in kids' ministry. I'm, I'm calling out all of you kids because I get to deal with your kids. And one of, one of our kids, the Martins kids, one time we were talking, and he, we were talking about <laughs> how God, God loves us. And, and he, uh, I'm not going to say which one. He said, well, God loved Hitler too. I chuckled. All the other kids just kind of kept going on. And I looked at him, and I'm laughing, and he looks at me like, yeah, God loves Hitler. <laughs> like, but what he's saying is so intensely profound and truthful, so intensely profound and truthful that God loves the most wretched of people. But as I thought about that a little bit, a little bit more, Men are evil, and we all know that. Women are evil, too. I'm not throwing just men under the bus. But I have this sympathy for really evil men sometimes. I'm not a Hitler sympathizer, so don't hear into that. But I don't think Hitler woke up one morning and said, here's what I'm going to do with my life. I don't think when he was 17 years old, he was like, I have a plan, and I'm going to do this. I think most evil men who find themselves doing evil things and don't wake up one morning and go, here's my path to end in destruction. What it is, is it's, it starts out as a real uh, subtle like jealousy or, or a, like a little white lie or this thing which we kind of throw out and say, ah, it's not a big deal. But that thing compounds and then it compounds and then it compounds. And all of a sudden, you look back, and 20 years later, you've lived this life of destruction and chaos. Now, it doesn't void the fact that God loves you. It doesn't void the fact that Jesus died for you. But it doesn't, doesn't explain, just because God loves you and Jesus died for you, it doesn't explain the chaos that you've created by making poor choice, selfish choice, bad choice, simple choice, one after another. In the story of Joseph, you continue to see this like progression of jealousy that bursts itself into potential murder, that, bursts, that eventually they lie to their father and they manipulate the story enough to try to get away with it. Now what am I trying to say with that? We have to pay attention to the little things. We have to. The little things that alter the path just a bit. The angry glance at someone. The little bitterness you have in your heart towards somebody. The little jealousy of your neighbor. All of those just little things. The little white lie that you say that kind of just alters the truth just enough. Because here's what happens. Those stack. It's, each piece is a Lego that builds and builds and builds and it's connected and it's connected and the only way to get rid of it is to destroy it. And the only thing that can destroy it is the work of Jesus and the confession. Again, I'm going to go back to something I said five weeks ago. What if they just would have said we're sorry? Now, as we know how the story unfolds, God has a big plan going on here. But I want, us to, I want you to remember this. These little seeds of sin in our lives grow to big, gigantic weeds that choke the life out of your spiritual walk with the Lord. 
they choke it out. Step by step. And if we don't pay attention to it, if we don't look at it, if we don't acknowledge it, it'll slowly suck the life out of you. Again, that happens in churches too. Little ones, gossip, factions, being angry with one another, it will slowly choke the life out of the church. It'll choke the life out of our church. Being annoyed or frustrated. Frustration's not a sin, but if you start to stack frustration on frustration on frustration, that turns to anger. And anger turns to apathy. And apathy turns to, like, I just want to do things to make you feel how annoyed I am. And there's not usually a good thing that comes out of that. There's times. I, hey, listen, it's, you don't have to appreciate, appreciate me anymore. It's November 1st. You can be done appreciating me. October is over. But there's going to be times where I annoy you. Why sit on it? Why sit on it? Why let that stack and add to another thing and to another thing and to another thing till eventually you go, I'm so ticked at Jason because of A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V. And he hasn't even got to the last four or five yet. But he's going to get there because he's so frustrated. Just come up and say, like, help me understand. I'm annoyed with you, and I know you care about me. Let's figure this out. Now, that's just you to me, right? But there's that, that's happening in the church. You've seen it happen in your families. You've seen it happen here. It's happened here, and it's going to continue to happen here. But if we talk about it, if we talk about it, and we bring it out, these little things that build up will go away. They'll be forgiven, they'll be worked through, they'll be dealt with, and we won't look back seven or eight, ten years from now and go, oh, how did we get here? Just like the brothers were like, how did we get here? We were so jealous and frustrated, we hated his stupid dreams, and we were tired of this punk teenager telling us how it's going to be, and we are tired of him being loved by his dad, and all of a sudden we plotted to kill him, and not even that, we just sold him. We sold our brother. How do we get here? I don't want to ask that question six or seven years from now. How do we get here? Why why haven't we dealt with this? It begs the question now, if you're following along, ask some blanks you want to crank, and here we go. If you have your bulletin, you can whip it out. If you don't have one, there's one back there. We have three blanks we're going to crank. How do we deal with this? Here's what we got to do. The first question is we got to ask this question. God, what are you doing? What are you doing? So the, the um, story of this morning that Hannah read, Jesus says, what do you want from me? I think it's okay for us to go, God, what are you doing? Say, what, what's going on? Help us. Now, that's a, you know, an additional question, but like, God, what are you doing? Even putting yourself in that position, God, what are you doing right now? So if Jacob, as a father, if he would have been teaching his kids about Yahweh, about the, the God of Abraham and Isaac, and they would have come to him and, and been frustrated about Joseph's position and, and the robe and, and the dreams and all of those different things, they were like, like Jacob could have articulated, God, what are you, like, Here's what he's doing. This is what God is doing. The boys could have been like, God, what is God doing with this? Why is Joseph so loved? Why are we not loved by, why? why? What are you doing, God? Ask that question. We need to ask it individually. You need to ask it in your family. We need to ask it as a church. God, what are you doing? 
I'm, I'm not going to drill down too far on this. Like 12 seconds. But in a couple days, which we should already be asking the question, there's going to be this thing that happens in America. Maybe you heard about it. Everybody's going to be wearing stickers, and they're going to like... Does anybody, fo- does anybody uh, follow John Chris, like the comedian? He like put out this picture this last week. Like 40-year-old Americans complaining about how everybody gets a trophy. Also 40-year-old Americans posting pictures of themselves saying I voted. <laughs> really funny, right? But we're gonna, there's this thing that's happening. It's, it's called an election. It happens every two years, actually. It's not every, I mean, but we're going to vote. Some of, I, I already told the men I'm writing in Calvin Coolidge. <laughs> he can do it just as good as you can. Right? Now, listen. You, we're going to throw our hands up in the air, but here's the question that should come. God, what are you doing? What are you doing? Because as soon as you ask the question, what are you doing, you are seeking. You are immediately in a position of seeking. What does Jesus say to his followers? Seek first the kingdom of God, and everything else will be added to it. It's the moment you ask the question, God, what are you doing? You begin to put yourself in a position of seeking. You're already going, I need to figure this out. I want to find out what's happening. So it doesn't matter who you vote for, I promise. But it does matter if you ask the question, God, what are you doing? Because then you're in a position of trying to seek out his work in your life and where you live. There's elections all over the planet. God, what are you doing? Second question. God, can I trust you? God, what are you doing? God, can I trust you? As soon as you ask the question, can I trust you, what's happening in your heart? Sure, you might have a little bit of doubt, but again, you become a seeker. You become somebody that's saying, help me understand if I can trust you or not. And then you start to go through the Rolodex of memories where God has been faithful in your life. And if you're missing those, if you're missing some of those faithful moments in your life, then we need to talk or you need to talk to somebody else because I'm sure that as you have a conversation... And if you love Jesus, you will, you will start to have those things come out just as a natural conversation. You're like, oh, you just need to be pointed in the right direction. But as soon as you ask, can I trust you? You start to be reminded of all the ways God has been faithful because his promises are true. And he's always going to show up to those who seek him. I promise he will always show up to those who seek him. And when you show up to ask those questions, he shows up. James 4.8 says what? Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. It's a promise from God. If you seek me, if you draw close to me, I will return it, and I will draw into you, and I'll bring you close to me. Can I trust you? Put you in a position of searching for the Lord. And then you start to go, search my heart, oh God. What do you have? What do you have? The last one's not really a question, it's more of a statement. The thing that you have to say. God, help me to follow. Help me to follow. Before GPS and our silly phones, we had no idea how to get anywhere, right? We didn't know where we were going. 
I can't even imagine right now like having to whip out a map in like Minneapolis to figure out how to get to certain locations. I did it, and I'm here. I just drove around until I found it. Now we get the little blue arrow that like lets us, you know, we get the whole thing. We can just kind of drive, and our car's there, and we're like, mm. it's made lazy spiritually too. We're just waiting to arrive somewhere, waiting to get there, waiting to show up, waiting till the little blue line arrives at its spot. You're living in between the starting point and the end point, and the little blue line is not clear. It goes everywhere. Help me follow this line, Lord. Show me the line. Reveal the line to me. Help me trust that the line is true. I promise again, as people of God, we're going to find alternative routes to the destination we want to go. And those routes are not going to be fun. They're going to end up in places, and you guys have stories where the route has taken you somewhere else. You thought you were doing it right. You thought you were following the Lord. You thought you were seeking Him well. And all of a sudden, you ended up doing some sort of thing that you didn't plan on doing. It's a little sin that just kind of creeps in and deviates the path just enough over and over again. And as that happens and it's not dealt with, all of a sudden you're trying just to get to Wendy's and you end up in a place where there isn't one. Like a lot of locations on the planet. And all you want is a pretzel bacon pub cheeseburger. And you end up having to have White Castle. Which is sweaty steamed meat. And that's disgusting. But you understand what I'm saying? You end up being a college student at 3 in the morning looking for french fries with nowhere to go. Those people are really not fun to talk to. Nobody likes that. I used to be one. I didn't have any friends then. I have tons of friends now. I've got like 92 friends right now. I mean, joke's on you. You're the one sitting here listening to me. <laughs> you think I'm wrong, but you're... only one person's got to leave. It was John Weeby, and he just walked out a little bit ago. <laughs> but that's what happens. If you're not asking the question, help me follow, or, or can I trust you, or what are you doing, God? Your path is a mess. Our paths become a mess. You end up being one of the brothers, one of the 11. Three more weeks of of unpacking this story of Joseph that is going to end in the most famous line in Genesis. Now, some people think it's in the beginning. It's not. It happens in Genesis chapter 6. I'll paraphrase it because it's important for us to understand. What man intended for evil, God turned to good. What man intended for evil, God turned good. God has taken all sorts of evil behavior of men and turned it to good. He took the murder of his son, Jesus, and saved the world by it. God, what are you doing? God, can I trust you? God, help me to follow you. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for our time. Lord, uh, I pray that everybody has a great Sunday afternoon. Lord, that people get rest. Lord, that all of our kids adapt to the weird hours. Lord, what are you doing with daylight savings time? And it's so strange. Lord, thank you for the sunlight today. In Jesus' name, amen.
Goodbye, online family. Hey, before.